This morning we're going to be in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, please join me in Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the passage of where Paul is in Ephesus. This is verses 11 to 20. And now I want to start this message off by letting you know I'm a huge fan of travel. I love to travel, and whenever I travel, I look so much forward to experiencing the culture when I travel. And what that means is experiencing the food, experiencing the people, experiencing the history of the culture. These are things that I look forward to when I go to a new place of travel. Now, one of the most extreme places I have ever experienced is NOLA. If you know what NOLA is, NOLA is New Orleans, Louisiana. And if you've been there, you would know exactly what kind of culture I'm referring to. New Orleans is famous for many different things. They're famous for jazz clubs, the musical arts. They're famous for the St. Louis Cathedral. They're, they're famous for the powdered donuts, the beignets. Those are so good. They're, they're famous for the 18th century buildings. Uh, they're famous for Mardi Gras. And if you walk around the French Quarter, you're, you're, you're going to be exposed to so many different street performers. But now us who believe in Jesus, we also know that there's some things that New Orleans is famous for what we would call infamous. They're famous for the practice of voodoo. They're famous for the practice of witchcraft, sorcery. They're famous for tarot card readers and such things like this. Now, the culture has a huge craze about this. I mean, you go to any, any uh, shop, you're going to see these voodoo dolls. It even says your boss on it if you wanted to buy it and poke your boss. The funny thing about this is um, I'm not intrigued by that part of New Orleans. What I'm intrigued by is the street performers. The street performers, in my opinion, are amazing. I mean, they have a variety of talent. You might see um, a spray-painted statue of either silver or gold and making this funky pose, and they stand there for 30 minutes. Sometimes they're on their head for 30 minutes. I don't know how they do it. People walk by and throw money at them. You have uh, stilt walkers who are juggling sometimes chainsaws and machetes and, and torches on fire. I don't know how you do that. But you also you see uh, breakdancers, and you also see a lot of magicians and sorcerers and illusionists. And one time, me and my wife, uh, after I had just graduated from New Orleans um, Seminary, I, I, we're in New Orleans, we're experiencing New Orleans, and we're in the French Quarter, and we come across this magician, and he's doing a magic trick. He called from the crowd like a random stranger to come forward, and sure enough, this random stranger come forward. I know he's random because he was in the St. Louis Cathedral earlier with me viewing it, and he asked the stranger to pull out a denomination of bill. And so the stranger pulls out of his pocket a $20 bill, and he, he shows everybody to the crowd, and he tells the stranger, now sign this bill. And so the, si uh, the stranger signs this bill, hands it back to him, and the magician starts folding it in half, and he folds it in half, 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 and then just voila, disappears right before your eyes. So, okay, now how did he do that? This is some kind of witchcraft going on, right? He continues with this trick. He pulls out this lemon. This, it's not a movie prop. It's an actual lemon, and he shows the crowd this lemon that has never been cut open yet. It's a ripe lemon. It's ready to be cut open, and he says, okay, now watch this. He takes a knife, and he opens his hand, and he shows everybody this slicing up of this lemon. He sets the knife down, shows open hand, nothing's in his hand. He digs into this lemon and pulls out this piece of paper. And he starts to unravel it, and as he's unraveling it, you see the lemon juice just falling from it. You know this thing was saturated in there. I don't know how he did this, but then you recognize the signature of the random stranger that signed this bill. Now, I don't know what you think about magic and illusion, and I, I'm pretty sure this was some professional slate of hand, but what I do know is that historically, magic has been practiced for ages. Illusion and sorcery and witchcraft and voodoo has been practiced for ages, and in fact, we're going to be looking at a passage this morning, and I want you to know, we are not highlighting 
the power of magic. Today we're going to be highlighting the power only in Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where Paul was, he's in Ephesus. But first we need to understand that the culture in Ephesus is much like the culture in New Orleans. In Ephesus, the people, there was, there was a known town center, a known place where people would openly, actively practice magic, practice sorcery, practice witchcraft. And so as these people are doing this, they would, they would put faith in inanimate objects, believing that magic scrolls, bracelets, amulets, necklaces would have this, this power to heal people of illnesses, to cast out evil spirits. And they use this magic to try and heal people and to control demons. And even though this passage hits home on a lot of healing, it hits home on a lot of demonic power and a lot of magic, like I said, we're not focusing on the power of the dark stuff, but we're going to be looking at the strong biblical truth on experiencing the power of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to highlight this morning, is experiencing the power of Jesus Christ. Looking at Acts 19, we're going to observe three things that we experience in the power of Christ. This is what Acts 19, verse 11 and 12 says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The first thing I want you to know that we experience in this passage is we experience the power of healing. When we experience Jesus, we experience the power of healing. And what we just read was that Paul was doing uh, miracles and God was doing extraordinary miracles through the work of Paul. Well, we need to understand that it wasn't Paul that was healing these people. It was Jesus working in and through Paul to allow these healings to take place. So this is all Christ working through Paul. And this is something that Jesus allowed his disciples to do. If you remember, Jesus said, you guys can go and cast demons out and, and... and heal the sick. So these were um, interesting miracles because the extraordinary part of this was God was using handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul used to be taken to the sick. Now you need to understand what was Paul's profession. His profession was a tent maker. And so as Paul is making tents, likely he has a sweat rag, what we would call today a sweat rag. So likely Paul is taking his sweat rag, wiping his sweat off as he worked, and then these people are coming coming around taking his aprons, his handkerchiefs, and bringing them to the sick people to cast out evil spirits and to heal people. And the people were being healed. The people were putting faith in this fabric that Paul had touched, and perhaps they, perhaps they thought it was superstition. Perhaps, I mean, in, in an area of uh, so much voodoo, or they weren't doing voodoo, I don't know if voodoo was around, but witchcraft and magic and sorcery, that's all surrounded by superstition. So it's likely that they, they believe that if I just take this fabric that has touched Paul, who I feel is a godly man, who God is obviously doing amazing miracles through him, then just maybe if I bring this handkerchief to my aunt, she will be healed. Maybe if I bring this handkerchief to my dad, he's going to be healed. Maybe if I bring this handkerchief to my son, he's going to be healed. And so this is what happens. Um, And this isn't a crazy thought. I mean, people think about this all the time, even today. I mean, think about uh, in the sports world. If you're a professional football player and you catch a game-winning touchdown, the football player takes his gloves off, throws it in the crowd. What does the crowd do? They want that glove because it touched the person who just caught that touchdown, the game-winning touchdown. There's power in those gloves. So this isn't a crazy thought. And I mean, Jesus found himself in a very similar situation, as we read this morning, on a way to healing a dying daughter. Jairus' daughter was dying, and Jesus is on his way to go heal this woman. 
this daughter, this young girl, and we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 43 to 48, and there was a woman who had discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounding you and pressing in on you. It could be anybody. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and now and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman believed after 12 years of bleeding, 12 years of investing all her money into being healed, to be uh, fixed in her situation, to be healed of her illness, she believed if, if I just get my hands on the fringe of Jesus' cloak, if I just get my hands and touch the cloak that Jesus is connected to, then just maybe I will be healed of my illness. And sure enough, that's what she does and she gets healed. You see, when we experience the power of Jesus, it's true. There's an aspect of a healing power. Now, what's also true is that Jesus doesn't always heal people physically. He does have the power to heal every single person, but not every ill person experiences the physical healing in the power of Jesus Christ. Something that I examined through Scripture is that Jesus had a different priority when it came to physically healing people. I mean, if you look through all the times that Jesus healed somebody, he was always prioritizing the person's relationship to God the Father before he actually healed them. He would say things like, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. You are healed. You're, you are healed. Go and sin no more. He said to the, the paralytic, you, are, you can get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 48, what we just read in Luke chapter 8, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And maybe... Maybe you're here today and you have a testimony that you've experienced the healing power of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that is a wonderful testimony. Maybe you're here and you're an eyewitness to somebody experiencing the healing power of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that is an amazing testimony. When physical, when physical healings happen, it puts God's testimony on display and it puts his power on display. But the hard truth is, it's always not in the will of God to heal people physically. Sometimes our physical illnesses need to be a part of our life so that we can glorify God in the illnesses and setbacks that we experience physically. I mean, I know people who have begged for God to heal them for years after years, much longer than the woman bleeding for 12 years, for years that, that, she could be, that they could be healed. And God has not healed them. For me and my wife, we were a family pleading for God, begging God, to heal our, our son. And now with, with all four of my children, one thing that I always do is when they're born, I, I, I put my hand over them and I, I pray for them. And in front of everybody, I pray a blessing over them. I pray for protection. I pray for safety. I pray for security. I pray for them to come to know Jesus at the earliest possible age. I pray for them. Now when my second son was born, I knew something was different. I knew that he was fighting something. And I put my hand on him, and I begged God. I said, God, please heal my son. He's fighting something we don't know. The doctors don't know what's going on. 
He's so young. He's so little. His body's so fragile. God, please heal my son. Our OB, our doctor who delivered our baby, he, she even came in and she, she asked us if she can do an infant baptism for our son. And, and, and she's a Catholic believer and, and honestly, we, we, uh, we, we don't really agree. Me and my wife don't agree with infant baptisms. Nothing, I'm not going to talk about it biblically, spiritually here right now, but in this moment, we needed a miracle. So we said, sure, please baptize my infant, please. If anything would work, in the name of Jesus, do it. My son passed away hours after that. And I remember holding on to my lifeless son, begging God, God, you've done this before. I've read your word. I've read your scripture. Just breathe the life back into my son. Breathe your spirit back into my son. Raise him from the dead, God. You did it with Jairus' daughter. You've overcome the grave, Jesus. You've overcome death. This is nothing that you're foreigner to. Please raise my son from the grave. God didn't heal my son. And now he's in glory with Jesus Christ. And the, the church, I want you guys to know that the truth and the point of this is that God doesn't always heal our physical needs. But Jesus' prior, priority isn't always to heal us physically. But I can tell you that what his priority is to do is to heal us entirely, and he does that by healing us spiritually. One thing that Jesus for sure does is he heals and restores our broken nature. I don't have to convince you to know here today that you have sinned at least one time in your life. That one sin has committed you to be separated from God the Father. And because of that, you are in need of healing. God can restore that. One thing Jesus does is he, he heals our sinful desires. Jesus, he heals our, our sinful minds. He heals our broken relationships. Jesus is known to, to heal broken and failing marriages. Jesus has healed and restored our relationship with God the Father. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has separated us from a holy, loving God. But Jesus has healed and restored that separation by suffering and dying, not staying dead, but raising from the grave, declaring his power and authority over healing. So Jesus, he heals us, restores that separation. But we need to know and understand that without Jesus, we're still broken. Without Jesus, we're still, we're still spiritually dead. For if Jesus has never rose from the grave, our faith, our, our Bible teaches us that our faith is actually futile. It has no saving power. So what we need to understand is that we are healed physically. We can be healed physically. But more so, we are healed spiritually. And that is restoring the right relationship between us and God, the Father. Coming back to Acts 19 the people were confident that the fabrics would do only what Jesus could do, and that was to heal. Whether it be physical healing, it was for sure spiritual healing, but we too can trust and believe that we can experience the healing power of Jesus. It might not be physically, but it could be definitely spiritually. Not could be, it is. We continue reading in verse 13 of Acts chapter 19. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, 
so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The first thing we experience is the healing power in Jesus. The second thing that we experience is we experience the power in the name of Jesus. And at first glance, after we just read that passage, you're probably like, Pastor Kevin, that's not true. These sons who did this in the name of Jesus, they were made a fool of themselves, humiliated. The demon actually overpowered them and ashamed them, humiliated them, made them walk out of the house and run out of the house naked. That's not power in Jesus' name. No, I'm going to tell you this. These boys were mishandling and they were abusing the power in the name of Jesus. These boys were Jews who went around exercising demons, and uh, they likely did this for a living, but their tactic in doing it was all wrong. I mean, if you look at verse 13, if you have the NIV, this is what the NIV says. They would say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. These sons, they thought of the name of Jesus as some kind of incantation, some kind of spell that they can say, and that's going to be enough for them to exercise and get their living wage. You see, what they thought what worked for Paul just might work for them. If Paul is able to exercise all these demons, if he's able to heal these people, then maybe if I do this in the name that Paul proclaims, then maybe I can have that power too. So maybe, just maybe, I can exercise demons because Paul's able to by saying the name of Jesus. To understand this simply is that these boys, they did not know Jesus as their Savior. They were not anointed with the gift of healing. They did not know Jesus as their Savior. They had no power in their words. And the demon-possessed man, he calls their bluff. The problem was is that these boys, they would actually use a listed name, a long list of names of anything that had any kind of deity or divine power. They would use a list of names and just shout out all these names, hoping that just maybe if I say the right one, one of them would work. But the demon talks to the boys and he says in verse 15, the demon's words, Jesus, I know him. Paul, I'm familiar with him. Who are you? Who are you? Now, demons would never be able to question these boys if these boys knew Jesus. The demons have no power or authority over Jesus, nor does demons have power or authority over the believer in Jesus Christ. But demons do know the power in Christ, and they fear for it. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it's a verse that is often brought up about demons knowing God, but what I want to draw in this is, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. So demons know the power of God. Demons know what Jesus can do. They know that they have to bow down to the authority of Christ. But demons fear and tremble in the name of Jesus. The boys in Acts, they get, they get attacked, they get beaten up, they get bruised, they get bloody, they get stripped naked, humiliated. Why this happened is because these boys did not have the power in the name of Jesus that they were trying to proclaim. Because if they did have the power in that name, if they, if they truly knew Jesus as their Savior, this story would have been different. This story would have absolutely been different. And I think of the story that Jesus encountered, this demon-possessed man in, in Mark chapter 5, as he's coming into, uh, off this boat and he's coming to his new land, uh, there's this demon-possessed man who has been kind of like isolated from everybody because he's so, uh, so overpowered by demons. There's so many demons in him that his name, the demons' names were actually legion because there's so many. And this man couldn't even be held down in chains, couldn't even be held down in shackles. If, if you put chains on him, he would break those chains. So Jesus encounters this man, this demon-possessed man in, in Mark chapter 5, and he says simple words. He says, for he said to him, Mark chapter 5, verse 8, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Simple words, but done with authority. 
Simple words, but done with power. Simple words, and not done just in the name of Jesus, but done by Jesus himself. The demons left this man and entered the pigs, who then ran off the bank, and they rushed into the water, and they drowned and killed themselves. All because they were commanded to do so in the power of the name of Jesus. Why this is important is because in Acts 19, what we discover is that there were imposters. Those boys, those seven sons of Siva, they were imposters. They were mishandling and abusing the power in the name of Jesus. What is true about people who believe in the name of Jesus is that there is power. As we say, there is power to break every chain. Power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And believers, you have the privilege and ability to tap into that power and live your Christian life. I mean, a few things you can do in the name of Jesus is you can pray in the name of Jesus. You can serve in the name of Jesus. You can speak blessings over your loved ones in the name of Jesus. You can bless your home in the name of Jesus. You can experience darkness fleeing, not just in your life, but other people's life in the name of Jesus. We get to experience salvation only in the name of Jesus. We have access to God the Father only in the name of Jesus. Yes, there is power in the name of Jesus and people who believe in the power in the name of Jesus we have the privilege to utilize such power. In church, spiritual warfare, is a, it's a real thing. It is a real thing, and people in Ephesus knew this to be very true. They sensed the demonic presence. They sensed the demonic power. They saw the magic. They saw the sorcery. They knew this was true. And it's, it's actually kind of funny to me that as I read where Paul is, he's located in Ephesus, and if you read the book of Ephesus, or the, book, the letter of Ephesians, He's writing in there heavy on combating spiritual warfare. In Ephesians, Paul instructs believers to put on this full armor of God so that they can be ready on the day that the enemy has schemes coming against them to destroy them. So it's kind of like funny to me that Paul is like saying, hey, believers, spiritual warfare is a thing. You need to be ready for it. You need to be ready to combat it. You need to be ready on the day of evil arrives. And what's true is that the enemy, when he sees you loving God, he does not want you succeeding. He's going to do anything and everything to jump on you. He's going to do anything and everything to creep behind the corners and the shadows of your life to destroy your life. But you have to be ready. So spiritual warfare is a thing because he wants to have you fall into sin, fall short of the glory of God, and be a trap for him to have a heyday on you. So it's no wonder why Paul wrote about this spiritual warfare in the city or the church of Ephesus. Our passage continues reading as we just learned that there's power in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 17 and 20. This is the, the testimony of what, what, what comes from this. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was, uh, Jesus was extolled. It was glorified, it was praised. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging in their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord count continued to increase and prevail mightily. The third thing that we get to experience, this third observation, is that we experience the power of repentance. 
we experience the power of repentance. And now this is one of those moments that if you look at what happened in the uh, verses that we read in the second point, this is what God meant, or the enemy meant for evil, and God uses it for good. And I know there's a song about that, but this is the truth of it. Like, the enemy pounced on those boys, destroyed them, made them humiliated, and has called them, and, and now what has resulted from that bad thing that the enemy did was God being glorified. Why was he being glorified? Well, perhaps the magic magicians, illusionists, all those people who were practicing, practicing witchcraft, probably they saw how dangerous their practice was. Probably they saw how dangerous and evil this was and that they knew that they had no business doing this. And so this promoted change. This promoted them coming clean. This promoted them coming and repenting of their sins. Now, if you were to ask me what repentance means, I'll tell you, I think repentance means that, hey, you were thinking of doing something a certain way, and as you did things a certain way, you thought of it being done a certain way that caused your actions then to reflect your thoughts. And so what repentance is, is changing the way you think of something, because if you change the way you think of something, it's going to result in you doing things differently. So if you repent from sinful ways, you think about doing sinful ways differently, what's going to happen is you're going to do righteous things because that's the opposite of unrighteousness. And I remember when I first became a believer, there was a supernatural change. I mean, I recognized my sin before God. I recognized I came forward and I asked God to forgive me of my sins. But I remember losing the desire to do the things that I used to do. I remember seeing things differently, and it's probably because God gave me a new set of eyeballs. He gave me a new mind. I remember understanding that sin was separating me from God the Father, and I couldn't allow that separation to continue to grow. I remember craving more of Jesus and less of this world. You see, repentance for me was changing the way I thought of doing things, as it should be for all of us, changed the way that, of how we thought about doing things, because that's going to result in a way of changing in our actions. And this is the power that we experience when we love Jesus. It's the experience of the power in a changed life. And that's the miracle about what we have here, is we have the, we have the privilege and, and the opportunity and the testimony to see, yeah, my life, my life has changed. My life is different. And it's because of Jesus transforming me. And when our life looks less like Jesus, especially when we are a believer in Jesus Christ, we get uncomfortable. We get very uncomfortable. And I'll tell you why you get uncomfortable. You get uncomfortable because you can't hug Jesus and hug your sin at the same time. You get uncomfortable when you are holding tight to your sin and saying, hey, Jesus, I want more of you. You can't hold both of them. It's one or the other. And the tighter you hold Jesus, the more further you're going to want to lose your grip on the sin that you go to the further you're going to want to push it away because you want the power of a changed person to be recognized in your life. Not for your sake, but for the glory of God. And when we realize something dominating us, controlling us, pulling us away from Jesus, we get to this point, what we call uh, repentance. We ask God for our, our, our forgiveness of our sins and, and, and we change the way we think and that results in the ch change of the way that we do things. And now these people in Ephesus, they came forward in Ephesus uh, practicing magic. And as a form of their repentance, they brought all their stuff together and they burned it. So you know what? Let's get rid of it because we obviously know this is destroying us. This is a hindrance in our walk with Jesus. We got we to gotta get rid of it. Now the value of this was a lot. I mean, some theologians say 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a, that's a lot of money. In our day and age, it could be about $35,000. Some say about $50,000. Whatever it might be, $35,000 will just go lowball. It's a lot of money. 
Back in those days, that was about 130 years of a working salary. It's a lot of money, a lot of years, a lot of investment. I mean, $35,000 today, I could use that. Can you use $35,000? Anybody want $35,000? I would love $35,000. I could do a lot with $35,000. But truthfully speaking, these people knew that they had to purge of these things because it was causing them to be a hindrance in their walk with Jesus. And truthfully speaking, when something is in our life that is a threat to our spiritual life, we need to do a similar measure in our repentance. When we do this, this will lead to a power of transformation, a power of change. And I remember, I remember being a teenager, and uh, one thing that I loved to do was collect DVDs. I know I was one of those weirdos who, uh, I, I, I was happy that Blockbuster went out of business because I knew all their DVDs were on sale, and I went and bought all their DVDs for like 50 cents. And I invested all this money into DVDs. I had about 300, probably more than that, DVDs uh, just as a stash. I was so weird. I would put my DVDs on the floor, and I would lay them out all across the floor just to see how many I have. It was like my tile. I didn't walk on them, though. That would be crazy. I would break them. But I had all different types of DVDs. I had the action films, the suspense, the horror, the, the thrillers, the, the romance, the fantasy. I had all of them. And I'll never forget this day because my brother Josh, um, if you guys don't know, I was taken in. Um, off the streets by a family, and uh, I was inheriting a family, um, and my brother, my new brother, Josh, he didn't live there, so he didn't know that when I got saved that I kept on to my, my DVDs, and so one day at a family gathering, uh, when I moved into this house, my movies came in with me, and Josh goes in my, brother, in my bedroom one day, and uh, he sees this stash of DVDs, and he comes running out into the living room, and he's like, can you believe all the adult explicit material Kevin has in that bedroom? And I just remember like, what are you talking about? There's no, I don't have that stuff in my room. And he's like, yes, you do. All those scenes in those movies have raunchy scenes in it. And he was right. And I remember in that moment, it wasn't Josh convicting me. It was, it was God using this moment that made me realize that this is unhealthy for the believer. And I'm not, I'm not trying to convict you of your movie watching today. That's between you and God. But I remember being so convicted of it that I went to the local pawn shop and I pawned off all my DVDs. I made 200 bucks on it. I was happy. Sure, I didn't burn them like the magicians did in our story. But honestly, I realized that I'm better off spiritually without those movies. Because what I know about movies is it has a negative influence on us. I mean, we see the scenes in the movies. It changes our attitudes. I mean, I remember watching some movies where, like karate movies, I'll come out of the movie theater just trying to kick people. Why? Because it influenced me. I don't know. You see, movies have a way of influencing people, and it's often influencing us for the negative. But what's true about repentance is, is that we do it because it, it proves this change in us. We've all sinned in our life. I'm not, I'm not up here knowing your sin. I'm not going to uh, expose your sin specifically. I don't know your sin specifically, but what I do know is that God loves you so much, he doesn't want you in your sin. He doesn't desire for you to be in sin. And maybe, maybe there's something controlling your life. Maybe there's something controlling your life that you need to get rid of it just like these magicians did. Maybe there's something damaging your life and you can see and feel and experience the damage of this happening and it's weighing in and bringing even more issues into your life. Maybe you need to purge of it. Maybe you need to burn it. Maybe there's something that doesn't even seem sinful to you, but you can see how it's pulling you away from your relationship with Christ. Perhaps it's time to purge the things that are hindering you in your walks with Jesus. Because when you eliminate the things that are destroying you, you experience the power of repentance. You experience the power 
of being a changed person by Jesus Christ. And as we close this message, I want to look at verse 20 again in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, because we see something very incredible. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So here we are, magicians burning all their stuff, a lot of value, a lot of investment. Luke wanted us to know the value of what was being burned, 50,000 worth of silver. He wanted us to know that, and this word spreads widely. Now think about it. Let's say that you're a coworker, and your coworker knows exactly who you are, how you act, what you believe in, and probably hypocritical, but you go to work. You become a changed person. You're a changed man of God. You're a changed woman of God. What's going to happen? People are going to talk. Wow, he's different. Wow, she's different. There's something different about, wow, they, wow, they're different. They're a changed person. Think of your family. Your family knows you the best. Your family knows you the best. Wow. They gave their life to the Lord and look at how much of a godly person. This is amazing. This kind of word spreads. This word spread in Ephesus, it can spread here today. Now my question is, do you see the power that comes from experiencing Jesus Christ? Because when you experience that power, your testimony is going to be like that of Ephesus. News getting out, spreading widely. But the fact that Jesus can change a sinful person by doing nothing except opening up their eyes, opening up their hearts to righteous way of living, wow, the gospel transforms. And I've never experienced his power like this before. I mean, I have, but if you've never experienced his power before, I, I challenge you to experience it today. It's, if you've never done this, it's, it's super, super simple. A lot of people confuse this with a lot of different things, but all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord of Jesus Christ and he'll save you alone. It's not me. It's not me making an emotional experience for you. This is you calling on Jesus so that you can be saved. Your soul is at stake. This is for you. He desires to meet you where you are because he can transform you from where you are. Paul knew the power in Jesus because he experienced it firsthand. We get to experience this firsthand as well. We get to experience a transformed life. And now in the city of Ephesus, where it's much like our world today, God is calling people to repentance. And Paul wrote this in his letter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, about this new transformed life. And again, it, it's, it's interesting that he's talking to the church of Ephesus, talking to what's going on in the city of Ephesus, and he's pulling out this truth about a transformed person, a transformed life, a, a, a regenerated life, a repented life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24 says this, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts. Let the Spirit renew your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and truly holy. You see, church, what's true about this is our life, our old life, before we believed in Jesus, it's intended to be put in the past. Our old life is intended to be dead, to be put behind us. We're instructed to put on a new self, instructed to put on a new nature, one that glorifies and honors God. Now this is only done, is only possible by experiencing the power that is found only in Jesus Christ. What's unique about religion is that all these other religions 
They always say that if you want to be a devout follower, if you want to be a devout person following what we believe, if you want, excuse that, that's, that's the enemy. Get behind me, Satan. If you want to believe what we believe, then you must do behavior modification. You must do X, Y, and Z. You must be better at what you do. You must be outwardly showing that you are devoted in the things you believe. And then you'll be good. And then you'll, you'll show us that you're serious about what you believe. That's not true with Christianity. You see, Christianity and church, this isn't, this, this isn't a museum for healed and, and happy people. This is a museum for broken people. This is a museum for people to come and experience the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, I will clean your life up. You come to me and I will come inside your heart and I'll transform you from the inside out. Don't wait until you clean up your life. I'm going to tell you, you made this mess in your life. You're not going to clean it up. But Jesus is able and Jesus is willing for you to experience healing in his name alone. And that's going to draw you to a repented life. Nothing else can even attempt to do what only the power of Jesus can do. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you for this passage and the testimony of what we've witnessed in Acts chapter 19. Father, it's a powerful story. It's a powerful message. It's a powerful uh, a passage to preach on. And Father, I, I sense the biblical truth through all of this. And what I know is truth, God, is I know that you have the power over those dark stuff that was happening in Ephesus. The sorcery, the magic, the demonic powers, all that was in vain. But you, Father, are not in vain. You, Lord, have a glory that only you deserve. You have authority that only you are capable of handling. And because of that, Father, you are all deserving of the power, all deserving of your position in our life, all deserving of all the glory. And Father, I just pray for our church today that there there's anybody in here who's never experienced the power in your name, experienced the power of healing. Maybe there is somebody here who needs a physical healing. I don't know if you will, God. I don't know if you will heal them, but I know you're able. Maybe there's somebody here who's spiritually dead and they need a spiritual healing. Maybe there's somebody in here, Lord, who's never experienced the power in your name. Or perhaps there's somebody even here, Lord, who thought that they were walking the Christian life, who thought that they were doing the lifestyle of a believer, but they've been holding and hugging onto their sin. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us. I pray for your Holy Spirit to draw us into your love, to draw us into more of who you are. Lead us to the cross, Jesus. Help us lay down everything for your sake. There's power in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Please stand as we close in worship.